I'm not sure how many of you realize it, but there was a song released back in 1965 by a group called The Birds, a part of the foreign invasion, the British invasion, they called it. It was a song titled Turn, Turn, Turn. It was actually written thousands of years ago and appears in our text for today. The song they sang went like this. To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. And a time to every purpose under heaven. The very next year, 1966, Paul Simon, Simon and Garfunkel, released a new song as well. Now, if you're not a big Paul Simon fan, as I was, you might not know that Simon loved to write dark songs. Songs that actually questioned the meaning of life. In fact, even in his love songs, the theme is more often the transience of love than it is the joys of love. In fact, he would contemplate the way happy times would tend to end. And how life is all about the practice of moving on from things that have ended and finding new things and just repeating the cycle until you get too old to care anymore. Well, maybe he was struck by the words of the song Turn, Turn, Turn by the Birds. Or maybe he had in mind our text for today, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. When he wrote the song, Flowers Never Bend, with the rainfall. Anybody remember that song other than me? It was on the uh, uh, Parsley Sage Rosemary and Thyme album, uh, 1966. Just a piece of it. Through the quarters of sleep, past shadows dark and deep, my mind dances and leaps in confusion. I don't know what is real. I can't touch what I feel. And I hide behind the shield of my illusion. Oh, I'll continue to, to continue. I'll continue to continue to pretend. My life will never end. And flowers never bend with the rainfall. The mirror on the wall casts an image dark and small. But I'm not sure at all it's my reflection. I'm blinded by the light of God and truth and right. And I wander in the night without direction. So, I'll continue to continue to pretend my life will never end and flowers never bend with the rainfall. The birds, Paul Simon, and many others of the 60s, right up to the present time, have all come to the realization that there is one thing about which Nietzsche was right. As we shared last Sunday, we need a why for life. That he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. And the corollary of that is that without a sufficient reason, life is unbearable. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there this morning. 
trying to find a why that will make sense of it all. Last Sunday, we looked at the last half of the first chapter, picking up with verse 16 and all of the second chapter of Ecclesiastes. And we looked at it in terms of the investigation by the author. A sort of travelogue as he ventured down a few streets of which we are all too familiar. Searching. Searching for a reason. Searching for a meaning that would help him make sense of all of the cycles of life that we as humans experience. And we noted a couple of things. We noted a couple of things about his investigation. That he admits openly that his perspective involved a view or an examination of life under the sun. Under heaven. From an earthly perspective. In other words, he wasn't considering the possibility that there could be meaning that transcends our earthly physical existence. Our everyday experiences of life. Life lived among the daily routines of work and pleasure and and study. And the conclusion of his investigation presented in good ancient Jewish literary fashion right there at the beginning of his writing is that everything is meaningless. Everything is absurd. And so we come to the third chapter of Ecclesiastes today. And a sermon that I've chosen to title simply Seasons of Life. And as we're about to move into our text, the first thing that I believe we'll notice is that we're given a description. Yes, it's a poem. That's one of the reasons why it's so easy, it was so easy for the birds to make it into a song. It's a poem that concerns life under heaven. A life for which there is a season for everything. And there is a time for every matter under heaven. It's not so much a theological statement as it is a description of what he found regarding human life in the human world. Listen to the verses. Words of which many of you are probably all too familiar. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plan and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. May God add His blessing as we continue throughout the message to read His Word. I don't think you have to be a philosopher. 
I don't think you even have to be a scientist to understand that times and seasons are a regular part of our life. No matter when and no matter where you might live. And were it not for the dependability of God-ordained natural laws, both science and daily life would be chaotic, if not impossible. Furthermore, not only are there times and seasons in this world, but the writer of Ecclesiastes wants us to make sure that we understand, that we're aware that there is also an overruling providence in our lives. From the moment of our birth, in fact, actually David says, you knew me while I was still in my mother's womb. From the moment of our birth to the moment of our death, God is accomplishing His divine purposes, even though we may not always understand what He's doing. But let me tell you what I don't mean, what I do mean and what I don't mean by that. I do not believe that Scripture justifies a view of God in which God is somehow micromanaging everything that takes place in our lives here on earth. Think about it. The hair on the back of my neck stands up straight when I hear different things said by people. For instance, what kind of a God would take the life of someone causing pain to family and friends and relatives close by. Take the, some, the life of someone just so that he could have another angel in heaven. I, I know you've heard people say that. I have. He must have needed another angel in heaven. If that was even somehow what we become. The Bible never says we become angels. I believe it is God's will that I be in ministry. But Jesse and I had to sit down together to determine if First Christian Church Brook was the best place for us to serve the kingdom at this point in our lives. And in terms of what Keith Ray used to speak about in terms of our spiritual GPS, we had to decide, will our gifts... Will our passions, will this setting be the best place where we can accomplish the best for God's kingdom? I'm going to tell you, as a teenager, I got very angry with my my dad. I got very angry with the church. And I came close to getting very angry with God. When I heard my father at one point in my life, when... It was not a good time to move. You don't want to move from a small rural school to a big city between your sophomore and your junior year of high school. I will tell you that from experience. But when my dad said, when your mom and I have talk to this church and we think it's God's will that we go there. I said, Dad, don't tell me 
that God always calls you to a bigger church that pays more and has more benefits. I can't accept that view of God. I don't think God micromanages our lives. I don't think it's biblical. And I'll be able, I would be more than willing to just sit down and discuss any of that with you at any time. God has a big picture. And God has a place for us in terms of ministry in that big picture. And in the 14 statements that we just read, Solomon affirms that God is at work even in what appear to be the endless cycles of our individual lives. He's seeking to accomplish His will. And all of these events come from God and they're all good in their time. But I think the inference is plain. If we cooperate with God's timing, life will not be meaningless. One writer has suggested in his commentary that life is something like a doctor's prescription. Taken alone, the ingredients might kill you. But properly blended, they bring healing. One writer, again, said that to believe that God is sovereignly in control and has a time and a purpose for everything is not fatalism. It doesn't rob us of our personal freedom and especially not our responsibility. We still have the ability to turn away from God and to refuse all that He has in store for us. Everybody needs an Uncle Mordecai. You have an Uncle Mordecai? I had a Grandpa Mordecai. Mordecai was Esther's uncle in the Bible. Remember the story? Esther had become the queen by means of a beauty contest. But she was the queen. And the king had been persuaded by some evil men to put out an edict that the Jews were to be exterminated. Her own people. She was a Jew. And Uncle Mordecai got that news to Esther and said, Esther, you got to go to the king, your husband. And Esther wasn't sure she wanted to do that because in those days, if you went to the king without him bidding you to come, even if you were the queen, if he didn't hold the scepter just right, you lost your life. Esther was not sure she was going to go to the king. And Uncle Mordecai went to Esther. And there in Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, it tells us this, that when Mordecai heard that Esther was afraid of what the king might do if she approached without its beckoning, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all of the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But for you and your father's house, you'll perish. And who knows whether you might not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What's Mordecai saying to Esther? Esther, you might not do what God wants you to do right now. 
But don't think for a minute that God won't find someone else who will step up in order for Him to accomplish His will. And furthermore, deliverance will come. But not for you and not for your father's house. So notice what takes place. The teacher adjusts his sights because the 14 positives and the 14 negatives brought him back to zero. Nada. Nothing. Nothing in terms of meaning. And so he no longer looked at life from only under the sun. He brought God into the picture. And this gave him a new perspective. Look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 3. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Look at again at verse 9. He openly states, I have seen. He's made an observation. And he does so in response to the same question that was a part of his opening way back in chapter 1, verse 3. Is all of our labor worth it all? And from the human perspective, from the 14 positives and the 14 negatives, no. No. What is there in this life that makes it worth it all? Work? Really? Enjoyment? Fun? Games? Even that gets old, doesn't it? I loved water skiing. Man, I was so thrilled when I finally learned how to ski on two skis. But it wasn't long before two skis just wasn't flipping the the bill. And so I had to learn to start cutting back and forth across the wave and jumping on those two skis. Well, soon that wasn't even satisfying. So guess what I did? I kicked off one of those skis and started going with one ski. We don't, ultimately, we we lose all the fun out of a lot of things, don't we, when it's just life under the sun. But the question remains are our labors really worth it? And Solomon says, first, yes, they are. Because our life is a gift that God has given. In view of all the struggles that we experience from day to day, life may not seem like a blessing. It may seem like a rather strange gift. But it is God's gift just the same. You know, we often busy ourselves trying to explain life's puzzles. But the questions that seem to have no answer and from our perspective seldom do we succeed to find an answer in the end they have a reason they have a time oh yeah we pass out our cliches which are are pretty meaningless sometimes trying to comfort people but they're really rather stupid listen If we believingly accept life as a gift and thank God for it, how could we not have a better attitude toward the burdens that come our way? If we grudgingly accept life as a burden, 
then we're going to miss the gifts that do come our way. Outlook helps to determine outcome. Outlook helps to determine outcome. Look out a window. You can either look up and see the beautiful sky or you can look down and see the muddy, mucky mess. Same window. Second, our life really is linked to eternity. That's what he says in verse 11. 1960, a guy by the name of Blase Pascal uh, wrote a book called Pentheus, which was a defense of the Christian religion. In that book, he has a quote. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there once in man was true happiness, of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. And though none can help, since this infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God Himself. Augustine would later quote, Pascal loosely and say within every human being is a vacuum that only God can fill. We're linked to eternity. Isn't that what Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 28 is all about? When it tells us that as human beings we were created in the image of God and we were given dominion over creation. Therefore, we're different from the rest of creation. We have eternity in our hearts. And therefore, we are linked to heaven. I was listening to a minister this week, uh, and he said, he said, you know what? There really are no atheists. There are just people who try to convince themselves that there isn't a God because they don't, want, they don't want there to be a God. Because if there was a God, that God would have a rightful claim over their lives. I think this explains more than anything else why nobody, including Solomon, can be satisfied with his or her endeavors and achievements. Nor are we able to explain the enigmas of life. God accomplishes His purpose in His time. But it will not be until we have eternity in place. Not just in our mind, but we are there in eternity. Now we see things darkly through a veil. Then we will see face to face. And so there is an explanation. That's where He takes us in verses 11 to 14. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And you know what? I have to be confessional. That's the only way I know how to live. You all know everything, as far as I know, that there is to know about me. I try to keep everything right on top of the table. Warts included. But when I read this, I said... Now, there has to be some other way to understand this. Because there are some things that are downright ugly. Are you with me? So I looked at it. And I went back and I did a word search. 
A word search of that word right there, uh, beautiful. It's a word that in the Hebrew means beautifully appropriate. Okay? In other words, appropriate in a sense of fulfilling the need that is there. He's made everything appropriate, appropriately beautiful in His time. Also, He's put eternity in man's heart. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor nothing taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. It's a new perspective for Solomon and for us. And from this new perspective, Solomon can say without hesitation that everything will be appropriate. Even the most difficult experiences of life He gives us an explanation to which there is a possibility for commitment. You see, (coughs) excuse me, what Solomon is saying is that life can be enjoyable now. And as the teacher, he already hinted at this back in chapter 2, verse 24, and was careful to say that this enjoyment that you and I can have in life as a gift from God is something that is not only important, but important for us to understand. And so he's going to come back to it in the next four sections from chapters 3 through chapters 10. Now he's not encouraging hedonism the enjoyment of enjoyment just for enjoyment's sake, but rather the practice of enjoying God's gifts as the fruit of our labor. It lets everyone know what we have to thank God for. I guess maybe I'll come out here to pray instead of behind the pulpit. This morning as Jesse and I left the house and we walked down here, I looked to the right and I looked to the left and I said to Jesse, don't the yards on this corner look so nice? Because yesterday while she and Autumn were gone, I got out and mowed our yard and I mowed Johnny and Mary Jane's yard and I even took the little mower over and trimmed around Mary Jane's peony bushes and you know, just got everything looking nice for Sunday. That's my dad's fault. He never wanted Sunday to come without the yard being in the tree. Enjoyment. I felt good when I got done mowing. And everything looked nice. He wants us to enjoy those, those fruits of our labor. And yet we understand that life is transitory. But whatever God does, 
it's forever. So when we live for Him and let Him have His way, life does become meaningful and manageable. So instead of complaining about what we don't have, let's enjoy what we do have. (coughs) And thank God for it. William Sangster, well-known British Methodist minister, he learned one day that he had progressive muscular atrophy. And he wasn't going to get well. What would you do? How would you handle that kind of news? I know that I wouldn't do well. Sangster, however, made four resolutions and kept to them all the way to the end of his life. One, I will never complain. No one ever heard William Sangster say a complaint about his physical condition. Two, I will keep the home bright. Three, I will count my blessings. And four, I will try to turn it all to gain. Kind of reminds me of my good friend, Jim Small. When Jim found out that his cancer had overtaken the majority of his body, he decided not to quit preaching, to do what he could there for the church at Onarga and for the camp right up to the end. And he said to me one day, he said, Chauncey, I've done my best as a minister to tell people how they should live. Now I want to show them how to die as a Christian. And he did. He did. Solomon is not saying, don't worry, be happy. He's promoting faith in God. Not faith in faith. There are a lot of people who have faith in faith. Oh, just name it and claim it and God will somehow do it. Like we can somehow hold God hostage. Faith is only as good as the object of our faith. And the greater the object of our faith, the greater we can accomplish. And when our faith is the Lord, we know that He can be trusted. How can life be meaningless and monotonous? if God has made you a part of His eternal plan. You are not an insignificant insect crawling from one sad annihilation to another. If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God being prepared for an eternal home. The Puritan pastor, Thomas Watson, said eternity to the godly is a day that has no sunset. Eternity to the wicked is a night that has no sunrise. Solomon says it like this, right here in verse 14, the proper attitude for us is the fear of the Lord, which is not the cringing of a slave before a cruel master, 
but the submission of an obedient child to a loving parent. And if we fear God, we don't have to fear anything else, for He's in control. Verse 15 gives us the assurance that God is in control of the cycles of our life. The past seems to repeat itself, doesn't it? Because there really is nothing new under the sun. But God can help us break those patterns. And that's why Solomon adds a new thought to what people had said all the, for a long time. God seeks what has been driven away. So what is the end of the matter? What's the conclusion? Solomon's already mentioned the certainty of death in chapter 2. And he'll bring the subject up again several times before the end of the book. Life, death, time, eternity, all of these are ingredients that make up our brief experience right here in this world. And they can't be ignored. They can't be ignored. I stood beside the casket when I was a teenager of a woman who had been my dad's helper in his library organizing things. She had gone for a routine visit. Routine visit. No known problems. They found an infection. They gave her a dose of penicillin. And she died of an allergic reaction to penicillin. Two young preschool boys stood beside that casket with me. A closed casket. Their father never let them see their mother dead. That little boy stood there next to me, looked up and said to me, Chauncey, they said my mom's in that box. Does that sound like he believed it to you? Especially when mom and dad had been having their problems. There are things that are a part of the reality of life that we have to prepare our children for from their youngest moments. We, every place we have lived, have had a pet cemetery in our yard where we have gone out with our kids to bury those loved pets. And where I cried many times. So Solomon says, all are dust and return to dust. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. Solomon seems to be saying the time goes by swiftly and gets away from us. And it does, doesn't it? I'm 68. I was thinking not long ago about my dad when he was 68. Gosh, he was old. Are you hearing me? I looked at our daughter 
not too long ago. And we started talking about something that happened during nap time at school. You don't take naps at school after kindergarten where she went. And it seemed like yesterday. Time goes by so swiftly. But you see, God keeps track of it. And He will, at the end of time, call into account (coughs) what we've done with the time that we've been given. This ties in with what we just read in verses 16 and 17. Where Solomon witnessed the injustices of his day and wondered why divine judgment was even delayed. Someone will ask, and often do, how can God be in control when there's so much evil in the world? Where the wicked seem to be prospering in their sin and the righteous suffering in their obedience? Solomon wasn't even the first one to raise that question. And he won't be the last. But once again, he comforted himself with two assurances. God has a time for everything, including judgment. And God is working out His eternal purposes in and through the deeds of men. Even the deeds of the wicked. Listen to me. Nobody. Nobody. Absolutely nobody knows what the future holds. I find it bizarre that people are even reading the works of Hal Lindsey and Jenkins when what those men predicted, those dates have come and gone and it didn't happen. My Bible says when somebody makes a prophecy and it doesn't come true, they're false prophets. But those books are still being read. You want to know who gets left behind? Go back and read Matthew and the parables. It's not the good guys that get left behind. Nope. I mean, it's not the bad guys that get left behind. I started to say it backwards, didn't I? No. That rapture that occurs at the end of the time in Thessalonians is the end of time. It's not the beginning of a thousand more years. Jesus said in the parables, the wheat and all of that is taken out and thrown into the fire and burned and then the righteous, the good is brought to Him. But you know what? Even if we did know what the future holds, we can't return and start it all over again. But if you and I can accept that God is still in control of our world, even in the midst of the political mess, that we are now in. Even with gasoline going over $4 a gallon, the cost of living already up 3% in less than 200 days. 
abortions being once again paid for by our government, by our taxes. Even in the midst of all of this garbage, God is still in control and has still written the last chapter. Let's pray. Father God, we know that life seems to go on in these endless cycles when we view it from the perspective of man. And how silly to think that 70 or 80 years, maybe even up to 100 here on this planet is all that life is intended to be about. Thank You for putting eternity into our hearts and our minds. So help us to prepare for eternity. Help us to view life from that perspective that gives us meaning. Help us to commit ourselves to that. To this end we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.